All right, well, good evening, y'all. It's good to see everybody here tonight at Awaken. Um, I know that spring quarter, I was talking to some of the leaders earlier, spring quarter sometimes can feel a little bit like a lull because, well, one, the weather still has no idea what it wants to do yet. It'll get hot and then cold and hot and then cold. But then also just a spring quarter just means one thing. It means summer's close or for many graduation is close. And so for many it means I don't want to study, like I don't want to do anything actually. And so I understand that sometimes the spring quarter can be rough, but thank you all so much for coming out tonight um, as we're going to continue our series titled The Resurrection, The Resurrection. And so just to kind of catch you up if you weren't here last week or just to recap anyway, last week we talked about two things, the resurrection event and the resurrection person. So the resurrection event and the resurrection person. And, and, and talking about this, we literally just looked at it and said, okay, what does the Bible say happened? Dealing with the resurrection, what does the Bible say happened, and how do people try and combat that? So we looked and we saw that the event was this. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. He says, first of all, Jesus Christ died by crucifixion. Second, he was buried. Third, we know the tomb was found empty. And fourth, we know over 500 people said they saw him. And so that was the event. That's what happened. We look at that and we say the evidence is pretty conclusive. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then we talk, not only is it amazing, the resurrection event, but we said Jesus also in John 11, he says this, this quote, he says, I am the resurrection, which is startling. For Jesus to say, I am the resurrection, he was saying two things. One, I'm the giver of life. I'm the one who started it all in the first place. And secondly, he's saying, I am life itself, which is a pretty neat thought. We know this. You get Jesus, you get life. You miss Jesus, you don't. You don't get life. That's John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. And so the question is, is how do we look at the resurrection and really apply it to our lives? How does the resurrection, is it only to be looked at as something to marvel at? Is it only to be looked at, and I don't mean this lightly, but as the cornerstone of our faith? We look at the resurrection and say, because of that, we know Jesus Christ is resurrected. We know that death has been defeated. But I want to ask tonight, how does that apply to us? So tonight, we're going to look at the resurrection life. And that's dealing with you and me, the resurrection life. What does this look like? We're going to be in Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bible with you. Romans chapter 6. And as you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of context, Paul just finished making the statement that um, where the law and sin increased, grace has abounded all the more. And he's talking about how whenever we received the law, we understood even more, one, how sinful we were, but two, we were able to understand and actually get an accurate reading of how sinful we really were. And so he's saying we saw that we sinned even more and more with this law, but where grace came in, grace abounded all the more. Well, he had some people that were saying, oh, what Paul is saying is we need to go out and we need to sin. And the more we sin, the more grace we get. Like that sounds like a really bad uh, motto for a church, right? Let's go sin some more and get more grace from Jesus. But that's what these people were saying. And this is Paul's reply. That's what we're picking up in Romans chapter 6. Starting with verse 1, it says this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, he says, let that not be so. Never. No, you got it wrong. And then look what he says. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, if you read much of Paul, you understand this. When Paul never asks a question, he actually wants anybody to answer. He is the king of rhetorical questions. Anytime he asks a question, he's wanting you to know real quick This is the truth. Like, how could someone who's died to their sin still live in it? He's saying they can't. If you have died to your sin, if you have died to your old self, you cannot continue to live 
and sin. And that's what he wants them to understand. Not only is it that you sin more so grace can abound, he says you can't continue to live in sin once you become a follower of Jesus. Now, to make this clear, whenever he says you can't live in sin, he means that sin is abiding in someone. It is the primary characteristic of who they are still. They, they haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's apparent by their life because they still live like the world does. They don't live any different. They still live for themselves, their own pleasure, their own glory, their own pleasures, possessions, passions, whatever it may be. They still live for themselves in their own sin. And so he says, how can we who've died to sin still live in it? Well, I'll be honest. A question I've asked plenty is if I've died to sin, why do I still sin? If I've died to sin, why do I still struggle? Why do I still find areas in my life where I say, I should be past this by now? Why do we have addictions for people who are believers? Why do we still struggle? And Paul's going to answer this a little bit later. But one of the main things he's trying to say first is he's trying to help them understand who their identity is. He says, if you've died to sin, you can no longer live in it. And he's about to tell them why. And in so doing, he's going to use a word identification. Paul's going to give them reasons why they cannot continue to live in sin after becoming a follower of Jesus, and it's because of their identification in him. And let me be clear. I've heard two things talked about plenty in my life. Justification, I've heard about plenty. Sanctification, I've heard about plenty. Whether people call them or not, we get a lot of teaching on them. Justification is the understanding that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. If you place your faith in him, you are in right standing before God. You have been justified through Jesus Christ. Sanctification is now understanding that as a follower of Jesus, I'm called to live like him. The sanctification process is us continuing to become and practice what God declares us to be in truth. In other words, he calls us holy, we seek to live that way. He calls us righteous, we seek to live that way. But Paul is going to talk about something that I don't feel like I've heard about much. And to be honest, as I read through this text, I was like, man, this is kind of tough to grapple with. It's this word identification. And I think identification, just in studying this, has helped me bridge the gap between Truly understanding justification and applying it to sanctification. That's a lot of tications. I understand that. But we're going to get through it, okay? So so now we're going to be talking about our identification in Christ. So let's pray and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you so much just for your word. God, I thank you so much for the book of Romans, as many call the greatest letter ever written. I thank you for Paul and his desire to write and to give us a rich book that's by no means easy to read and understand. But God, through your spirit, we can. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather. I pray that you'd help us understand what does it mean to be identified in you. Ask all this, Father, in your name. Amen. All right, so once again, identification. Whenever I say identification or ID, what's the first thing you think of? Driver's license, right? Driver's license. Your driver's license says something about you. It's identifying that you have taken a test, you've passed, you've passed a driving test, even though we would like to probably take them away from some people, your ID or your identification via your driver's license shows that you have a right. You have something you're able to do. You have a social security card that shows you have a right. You are a part of the United States. You're a citizen of the United States. You have a tech ID that shows someone paid for your tuition. Not so much tops anymore, right, because they're slowly taking that away, but somebody is paying for your tuition. You have a tech ID that shows you're a part of that. But whenever we talk about identification, we need to understand is this. Identification is to ascribe to oneself the qualities or characteristics of another person. In other words, it's to take something of someone else and to place it alongside someone else. It's to identify with someone. Let me give an example. So, and to see if maybe you've said this phrase before, I can identify that. 
So you, you're late to class, which I'm sure never happens, right? You're always on class, or if you're, like a lot of people, if you're late to class, you just don't go, right? You just don't show up five minutes late. I'm not going to do that. But, of course, you always go to class. Well, let's say you get to class late one day, and somebody asks, why were you late? And you say, well, I was driving down Trenton Street, coming South Trenton Street or whatever, and I got to the devil himself, the train here that decides to come 450 times a day. And so I got stopped by the train, and the train went by. Well, while the train was going by, it actually stopped on the railroad tracks. And so me, you know, I'm going to outsmart the system. I'm heading to Bonner Street, or I'm heading over to, in between the apartments, going to cross over the tracks. Well, by the time I actually get to the bridge, because everybody's going that direction now, I start going over, then I realize that the train isn't even where it was before, and I could have already crossed over, so I've wasted more time. And then now that I'm on this side of town, I realize I don't have any place to park because tech obviously doesn't care about that, right? So I had to park in Arcadia, and I ran down here. And so by the time I got here, I was late to class. That's why I was late. You know, if you said that, you know what somebody beside you probably say, man, I can identify with that. Like, that's happened to me. Like, I understand that. The struggle is real. I can identify with that. And we're going to look at with Christ is Christ gives us that right to say, I can identify with you. I can identify with what you've done. I can identify with who you are. And so looking at three different things, three keys to our identity in Christ. One is this. We must know our identity. We must know our identity or we must know how we identify with Christ. Look at verse 3. So he just finished saying one rhetorical question into another in Pauline fashion. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Which means we cannot. And he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this word baptized, it means to immerse. It means literally to be robed in something. It's to be surrounded in something. And whenever the Bible says to be baptized into someone, we see this in other places. Galatians uh, 3.27, I think I have that on the screen for you all. It actually says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 2, people being baptized into Moses. Well, this idea of being baptized into something is different than water immersion. That's the first thing we need to understand because a lot of theological perspective has gone into verse 3 and verse 4 on baptism is what saves you, and that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about being baptized into someone. It means to be associated with them. Not only is it associated with them, it's literally to be robed in that person. Imagine this. Whenever somebody becomes a soldier or a policeman or a fireman, whenever they put on the uniform, they have been baptized into the police academy. They have been baptized into the fire department or whatnot. It's literally this idea of clothing yourself with that. It's that idea of you're associated with that, and you've been now put into that. You identify with that. So the primary significance of what Paul's trying to say here is identification, such as what I just said, this idea of identifying with someone else. And so Paul, whenever he's talking about identification, and this has somewhere to go with it, he's saying, look, we can no longer sin once we, we can no longer live in sin once we become a follower of Christ because we identify with Jesus. Notice he doesn't just say we've identified with Jesus. He gets specific. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He starts getting specific of how we've identified with Jesus. Then he goes on further. Look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5, he says this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And then look at what he says here. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And that is what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about specific events. He says, if we know we have died with him, if we know we have been buried with him, if we know we have been raised with him, then he says, if we are united with him in his death, then we are united with him in his resurrection. It's a very interesting thing that he's saying here. He's talking about identifying with Christ, the identification that we're allowed to have as a follower of Jesus. And it looks something like this. I mentioned justification earlier. We talk about justification in this idea that because the penalty that God has paid for us, we can have a right standing with God. So we say this, justification, Jesus paid for my sin. Justification, the penalty has been paid. We say this, Jesus died for my sin. Do you know what identification does? It says I died with him. You see the difference? Jesus died for my sins. Identification is I died with him. He goes even further. Jesus was buried, the old self, dying after dying in sin or dying in sin for us, paying the penalty for sin. He was buried. We were buried with him. That's identification. Once again, he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. We were resurrected with him. Now he's called to walk in newness of life, or now he's called to live unto God, which we'll see. And we've been called to do that with him. If you look at the four events we talked about last week, the resurrection story, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, Jesus was seen by others as different. We are all called to identify in all those ways. We have died with him, we've been buried with him, we've been raised a new person, and now we're called to go and live different. Live in newness of life, which literally means let others see there's something different about us. So you start to see the difference in justification and identification. But look, he takes it further. By the way, we identify, it shows us how we can be dead to sin. Look at verse 6 and 7. So he's continuing just to build on this point. He says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he says this, we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one for one who has died has been set free from sin. Notice how once again, we know that what happened? We in our old self were crucified with him. It's this idea of identification. It's not just Jesus died for our sins. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you say, I died with him. The old me died with him. But look at the effect of that. Not only does the old you die with him, but he says the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, once again, the concepts are big here. The concepts he's pulling you through are big here. Now he's saying the chains of sin in your life have been broken. The chains of sin that hold you down, that continue with addictions, that continue with the things that so easily set us back, those chains of sin have been broken. In other words, you don't have to continue in them anymore. You know why? Because just as Jesus died on the cross, on the cross, if you are a follower of his, you died with him. And Paul is using strong imagery. I mean, think about this. When was the last time you actually thought, and he says, we know, we know our old self has died with him. That person's gone. That old me is gone. He is no more. She is no more. The old us 
is dead. We are no longer a slave to our passions if we're a follower of Jesus Christ. We're not. Jesus has broken the bar of slavery to sin in our lives. I love one quote by R. Kent Hughes. He says this, we need to know and count on this if we are to experience victory over sin because sin no longer has dominion over us. But how often do we act like it does? My brother, I remember whenever I was little, he joined the military. And I can remember he was gone to boot camp for a while. And then I remember he came back. And one of the coolest stories, just kind of a side note, one of the coolest stories I remember from my brother is he had this one sergeant who just harped on him constantly. My brother was known to have a little arrogance. And he said, you know, I went in there kind of thinking I was going to be able to whoop everybody or whatnot. He's really athletic. And so he was thinking basic training was going to be a breeze. And this sergeant picked him out from day one. And if you know anything about basic training, the first several weeks are we are going to break you down and make you feel like you're nothing. We're going to break you down and get all y'all to nothing, and then we'll build you back up. We'll be a family together after that, right? And so this guy continues just like Nick said. I can't tell you how many push-ups, how many sit-ups, how many things we have done or I have done because of this guy. And then Nick explained, he said, one of the best feelings, though, was whenever we went through our ceremony at the end of basic training, and my dad went there and got to be a part of it. Well, Nick was in line or whatever, and, you know, he sees his sergeant right here. Well, whenever my dad walks in the door... My dad's a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard at this time. And so Nick said the coolest feeling in the world was to see the sergeant who's harping on these guys see my dad and have to, you know, like sit up real straight or whatnot and and be able to salute him. And Nick's thinking like, yeah, that's my dad. And so anyway, he like takes a lot of pride in that, right? You know, you want want people to, I don't know, it's kind of, it sounds bad to say that, but you want to see somebody who's been mean to you have somebody over them. Anyway, that's bad to say it that way. I didn't say that. So anyway, it was just a cool feeling for him. Well, anyway, eight years later, My brother gets out of the military. And I want you to imagine this. Imagine that Nick's walking down the street. Or imagine he goes to another ceremony because a friend of his has gone through boot boot camp. Imagine he sees this sergeant again. Imagine this sergeant comes up to him and tells him, hey, drop and give me 20. Drop and give me 50. Drop and give me 100 or whatever. You know what Nick's going to say? Say, dude, (laughs) I don't have to do what you tell me to do anymore. Like, you have no dominion over me. You know why? Because that's done. I'm done with that. And what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ here is when we identify with him, we say the old me is gone. You know what that means? It means in your life, whenever you're struggling with sin, you can say, this does not have power over me. It means there's nothing in your life that can overtake you that Christ cannot see you through. It means there's no sin that's going to overtake you that's not common to man. Not only that, but that Jesus can't relate and say, I've been there with the temptation. Let me help guide you through this. But you know what the devil wants to do? He wants to do the exact opposite. He wants to tell you, look, <laughs> you've been doing it for so long now. You're struggling with this for so long now. You're, you're kind of enslaved to this. This is who you are. You're never going to get past this. You're never going to get past that. You're always going to be struggling with this, that, or the other. But the truth is, is we're under new management whenever we become a follower of Christ. And Paul doesn't just say this is true. He says, know this. We know this, that this is true. He doesn't stop there. Look at 8 through 10. He continues this idea. And he takes it once from talking about how we've died with Christ, and he's broken the bonds and the slaves of sin. Verses 8 through 10, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that, once again, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So one, Paul, once again, in talking about sin, not only does he say that we have died with Christ, 
But he says, we know that Jesus Christ is never going to die again. We know that he died that one time for sin, and now he's alive to God. In other words, we can know that the power of sin has been broken. We can know that this is the truth. We can know that we're no longer slaves to our old passions. Look down a little bit, Romans 6, 16 through 18. He starts talking about this later. In 16 through 18, he says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But then he says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. You now have become slaves to righteousness. This is a, a, just an amazing thought to think that we have died with Christ. He died for us, yes, I died with him. My old self was buried with him. Sin does not have dominion over me. My life does not have to be characterized by my old self anymore. Because, the Christ, because of the power that Christ has given to us through his death and resurrection and how we identify with that. So Paul first says, we know this is our identity. The second thing he says is this. We must own our identity. We must own our identity. Look at verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So he just finishes saying, do you not know you're identified with him? We know we're identified with him. We know we are identified with him. And then he says, so you also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This word consider is rich in the book of Romans. So rich, he uses it 19 times throughout. And whenever he uses this word consider, he's meaning this. It's to impute something to one's account. Basically, to consider something is to claim it. Con to consider something is to make it your own. And the way I put it is to own it. It's to understand that if this is true, Paul is saying, if we know this, if we know this, if we know this, consider it. Think about it. Mull over it. Meditate on it. Be reminded of it. This verb is actually present tense in Greek, which I don't like to use a lot of Greek stuff because a lot of that's still over my head. But a present tense verb means this. It's ongoing. It's continual. It doesn't stop. And so what Paul is saying, not only do we know this to be true, knowing it is not enough, which is sobering, right? It's not just to know it. It's keep it on your minds. Consider it. Continually be reminded of this because the truth is this is we continually lie about our sin. We continually feel defeated by our sin. We continually feel defeated by things around us. We continually feel like we have to live in sin or we're allowed to live in sin or even worse yet, we're trapped still by sin. And Paul says, no, we know we're not. Therefore, consider this. Think about this. Mull over this. As I was reading, I read um, one question from a guy. He started asking this, and I thought it was really good. He said, have you ever taken the time to consider the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, you participated in the events of the cross, that you died, and that you were resurrected with Christ? Have you ever taken the time to consider the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have participated in the events of the cross, that you died, and that you were resurrected with Christ. Now it's interesting, he starts talking about this in Romans 6 in a way where a lot of people might go, okay, this is kind of hard to understand. Well, let's see how Paul explained it in Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul's talking and he says, just like in Adam, you were raised in sin, 
in Christ, you have now taken on a whole new identity. Just how in, in Adam, he was the representative figure of all of humanity. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned, so sin came to all of us, right? And we were born in sin, right? And so that was our nature, our sinful nature. We identified with Adam whenever we were born in sin. What Paul's saying is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he's also a representative figure. Whenever you place your faith in him, you now don't identify with the first Adam anymore. You identify with the second Adam. And this is what this means is we identify in Christ. Identification is essential to understand how do we look at ourselves as followers of Jesus. How do we defeat sin that comes into our life? How do we defeat these things? And how do we know we can? Paul says consider this to be true. Meditate on it. Ponder it. And he says two things specifically. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You've died to your old self. Hear that again. You've died to your old self. Hear this. You've, you are no longer in bondage to your sin. But y'all, here's <laughs> how often do we break this in our lives? How often do we feel like we can't break sin in our lives? How often do we act like sin has a hold on us? Or even worse, how often do we let sin be the master in our lives and yet we don't fight it? As I was reading through this, I got reminded of a story I heard a long time ago and. I'm not really sure where I heard it or whatever. You may have heard of the short story. It's called The Elephant and the Rope. And this is a, I don't, once again, I don't even know where I heard this story, but it came into mind and I Googled it and it popped up. And so this story about the elephant and the rope is this, is it's a guy who's at a circus and he's walking around to all the exhibits and he sees all these animals caged and put in, you know, they have to harness these different animals or whatnot. But whenever he gets over to where the elephants are, he, notice, he notices that these massive elephants are not in a cage. They're not blocked off any way significant. Rather, they only have a small, tiny rope that's tied around their foot. And he was really interested by this, and so he decided to walk up to the trainer, and he goes, um, why is it only a little rope tied to the elephant's foot? Do they not know that, that, or do you not realize that the elephant, if it wanted to, it could just break that off? And the trainer says this. He says, well, when the elephants are really young, much smaller, we use this little size rope And at that age, it's enough to hold them. As they grow up, they're conditioned to believe they cannot break away. They believe the rope can still hold them, so they never even try to break free. My friend who he was talking to was amazed. These animals could at any time break free from their bonds, but because they believed they couldn't, they were stuck right where they were. Y'all, as long as we believe sin has a hold in our lives, it will. But whenever we recognize we identify with Christ, it's been broken. Look, we don't have to fall into the trap of pleasure over and over and over again. It's not going to please you. You know what? We know that. Paul is telling us we know that. You have died to that. We don't have to fall into this idea that the more possessions we get, the better we'll be. The greater stuff we get, the better we'll be. We don't have to fall into this lie over and over and over again. We don't have to fall into this lie that making a name for ourselves is the only thing worth doing in this life. But recognizing that being called a son or daughter of the king is the greatest value we could have. We don't have to fall into the lie that earthly things are what we need to be focusing on, but rather heavenly things are what we must be focused on. The truth is this, y'all. Whatever sin you continue to walk back to, you can break free from it because Christ says you can, and he paid the penalty so that you could. And we can if we've identified ourselves with him. We can If we've understood that whenever he died for us and we put our faith in him, we died with him. 
And so Paul says, know this. Know this. But then he says, own it. Remind yourself. Keep it on your mind at all times. Never sin approaches. Say, you don't have dominion over me. If you fall and you sin, repent. And say, you know what? It doesn't have dominion over me. Not only do we consider it, but then lastly, we must show our identity in Christ. So first, we know our identity. Secondly, we own our identity. And then third, we must show our identity in Christ. You know, I love whenever I'm reading through any part of Scripture, I like to stop at some points and say, what are they getting at? What's the point? And so the question here is, why is Paul even addressing this? Why is Paul even talking about this? Yes, he's talking to people who are saying, sin more so you can get more grace. But he's trying to talk to the believers and say, know this. Know that you have been broken free. He's saying, consider this. This is true. You have this freedom in Christ. And the truth is this, is they were struggling. They were struggling. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says this to them. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions, or to, ma- to reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So he first starts by saying, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's this idea of what we talked about just a second ago. We are no longer shackled to our sin. We are no longer slaves to our own passions. We no longer have to live the same way that we used to or the world tells us to. We no longer have to live in the passions of lust or any other thing like that. We no longer have to live that way. And better yet, he says, no longer let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. But then he says a key word here. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So he starts with this idea, know this, know this. Know that you have broken the bonds of sin because you have identified with Christ. Then he says, know this, consider this. Be meditating on this. Let this continually be reminded to you. But then he gets here and he says, present. So know it, consider it, and then present yourselves. So now this is where the action is involved. He's saying now we must come to Jesus, we must come to God and present ourselves. This is a decisive act where we say, Lord, you have all of me. Lord, may every part of me be to glorify you. This is where we say every single morning, Lord, may the words I say glorify you. May the words I say lift up others and not tear them down. May what I look at bring you honor. May it bring you glory. Better than that, may I look at others the way you see others. One of the neatest things we see in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Go check it out. Jesus is talking, or Paul is talking about Jesus, and he says this. He says, we are called to look at people the same way Jesus does. We present even our eyes. We look at other people as souls. We look at other people as as people that Jesus Christ died for as no less worthy of the gospel than we are. Lord, let what I listen to today be for your honor and your glory. I present them to you for your honor and for your glory. I won't watch things I shouldn't. I won't listen to things I shouldn't. I'll protect my mouth, my body. Let me go and do your work. Wherever I go, let it be to glorify you. Whatever I do, let it be to glorify you. In my relationships, friendships, work, school, everything, I present it to you. It's yours. You know, many of us know this verse, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Y'all, we were created for good works. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's created you to walk in good works. He's created a path for you. He's created a plan for you. And what Paul is saying is if we know this, let us consider it. And when we consider it, let it end with us presenting ourselves to God and saying, God, today I'm yours, top to bottom, head to toe, everything, I'm yours. We have to present ourselves to God. Well, I want to go back to the very first thing that I said at the beginning. So if we're followers of Jesus, if, like, like we've said here, we know that the, the power of sin has been broken, why do we still struggle? Why do we still struggle with sin? Now, once again, living in sin and struggling with sin are two very different things. But why do we still struggle with sin? Well, I kind of want to give you a different thing as I've thought about this. I don't want us to think about this so much as we struggle with sin. But I want you to think, is there reason to praise the Lord that you struggle with sin? Is there reason to praise God for our struggle in sin? You know, the truth is this. By nature, we don't struggle with sin. We indulge in it. By nature, we don't struggle with sin. We delight in it. By nature, we don't struggle with sin. We make sure to do it, follow it through. We have pleasures. We have passions. We meet them the way we see fit. We see things we want. We get them the way we see fit. We want our name to be known. We make our name known any way we see fit. But to struggle with sin, and by struggle I mean have a hard time with it. We're not okay in it. We can't indulge in it without seeing that there's something in me that doesn't want to do this anymore. The struggle with sin means I don't want to do anything that displeases God because I want to please Him. To struggle with sin means that you genuinely want to follow Jesus and what He has to say. And so I'm going to look at it this way. Whenever we struggle with sin, the question is, are we burdened by our sin or do we receive pleasure in it? If you're burdened by your sin, my guess is that's a holy struggle. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying indulge in sin. I'm just saying recognize the struggle might be a good thing. Let me explain even more. Struggling against sin isn't natural. Indulging and living in it is. Struggling with sin means you are fighting it. You don't want it in your life. Struggling with sin means that when you fall, you feel the desire and you must repent and seek to not do it again. Struggling makes you recognize your humanity in Christ's deity. Struggling makes you recognize once again that the grace that God has given you, you do not deserve. And therefore, you consider this once again. Why did I do that? I don't have to do that anymore. What is repentance? It's saying the same thing that Jesus does about our sin. And y'all, the truth is this. The struggle that we have with sin might be a good thing. It helps you see there's something in you that does not want this anymore. The question is, is what do we do with that? Do we seek to repent? Do we seek to give that to the Lord? Do we claim these things that we know that we have the power to defeat sin? One quote I want to give you by John Owen, it will be up on the screen, is this. He says, we must distinguish between the activity of sin and the dominion of sin. The presence of sin can never be abolished in this life, nor the influence of sin altered. Its dominion can, indeed, must be destroyed if a man is to be a Christian. The truth is this, is we will still struggle with sin. No doubt. But there's a difference in sin having dominion over us and sin being an activity we choose still to participate in. Will you be sinless in this life? No. 
But your struggle with sin will show you, I want to be like Jesus. Your struggle with sin will remind you that you're not him. And your struggle with sin will remind you how much you need him. And the beauty of this is Jesus didn't leave us alone. He didn't think that we weren't going to struggle. He says this, I've given you my spirit. John 14 through 16 says, I'm giving you someone just like me who's going to help you in this. I've given you my body, the church, to help you in this. And I've given you my word, the same breath that breathed life into Adam, breathed on this Bible, and it can breathe life into you and me continually. We must recognize this. We must marvel in this. Three things. We must know our identity in Christ. We must own our identity in Christ, and we must show our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Y'all want to ask two things just as, I just want to encourage you, one, just to think about yourself. Think about yourself, nothing else. Think about where you are. Think about the sin that has overtaken any part of your life or the sin that you're struggling with. And the first question I want to ask is this. Maybe tonight you recognize that sin has dominion in your life and you say, I don't want it to anymore. You say, I recognize my sin is the barrier that put Jesus Christ on the cross. I recognize I need him. I need to follow him as my Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you tonight to do that. As you're sitting there, I want to encourage you, talk to the Lord. Speak to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Surrender your life to him now. Present your body to him now and say, Lord, you have all of me. I don't know what all that entails, but I know this much. I want to live for you. If you know you need Jesus Christ and that sin has dominion over your life, I want to encourage you, consider this. Consider what Christ has done for you. And I want to encourage you to give your life to him tonight. Secondly, if you say, Merrick, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. What I want to do tonight is something I don't think is real common. I want to lead you through a prayer. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want you to pray this with me. Pray it to yourself, whatever. Say this, Father, thank you for breaking the chains of sin in my life. Father, help me live in light of this truth. Help me know this truth that I'm identified with you. I have died with you. I was buried with you. I've been raised with you. And I can walk in newness in life with you. Father, thank you for freeing me from the bondage of sin. Father, I want to live in newness of life. Help me know this. Help me consider this daily. And help me present my life to you daily. My life, all of me, is yours. In Christ's name, amen. Y'all want to encourage you tonight to think about those three words. Know, consider, present. This idea of identification is rich. It's rich. When was the last time you thought you participated in the event if you're a follower of him? Do you know these things? Do you hold on to these things? Or do you believe the lies that Satan has for you? That sin still is going to whoop you. This sin, you're never going to get over it. This sin, you're just going to be struggling for the rest of your life. Do you rely on yourself or do you realize he gave you the spirit to beat this, to beat sin, to fight sin? Once again, to struggle doesn't mean that we always win, but to struggle does mean we put up a fight. Do you know these things? Do you consider them? Will you consider them? And lastly, I want to ask if every single day this week, 
over this next week, put these three words somewhere. Know, consider, present. And however you want to do it, I want to encourage you every day this week, say, today, all of me is yours. Today, help me in my struggle. Today, help me see where I fall and help me turn to you. But Lord, today you have all of me. I'll be in the back. If you want to talk to me more about what does it mean to give your heart and your life to Christ, I'd love you to come talk with me. Otherwise, I want to encourage you, sit there, pray to the Lord. No consider. And give your life to Him in this. Surrender it over. Present yourself to Him however you see fit. Worshiping, sitting down, or standing.